Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is quite practical and contemporary that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in your daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Brethren, we have already addressed the, uh, the fact that we are created. We are made for relationships in previous weeks. We have talked how we are created to relate to God. We are made to relate to him. Everything, every attribute that dis- distinguishes us from the rest of creation, from the animals and other living beings, every attribute that distinguishes us is in function of that relationship. It makes it possible for, for us to have a relationship with them and, obviously, a relationship with one another as well. But we also pointed out in the weeks past that relationships have been messed up since the very beginning. You know, you go through the Scripture and all you have to go is the, the first thir- three chapters and you already find relationships being altered, distorted, by sin. The relationship with God has been distorted by sin. The relationship with one another has been distorted by sin. And I don't need to repeat that. But I do need to ask a question. What then? All right, we know that our relationships are distorted by our tendency to do the wrong things, our tendency to to sin. But then what do we do when the relationship has been impacted? What do we do when the relationship has suffered a blow? How do we restore them? That is something that we need to talk about, obviously, because we cannot just simply say we messed up the relationship through sin, but we need to also understand how to restore them, how to deal with them, how to cure them, how to bring them to the level that they should be. And this passage is one of many, many passages, because actually we could say the entire Bible, the entire scripture is about relationships. We're going through a Bible study on Thursday night right now. For those of you who know Well, you know what we're doing, but those of you who don't come, you need to know, and I think it would be good for you to know that those Bible studies are addressing, are going through the book of Genesis. And contrary to many people's opinion about the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis never, never, ever intended to be a a book of cosmology or a book of uh, origin in terms of physics and and things of that nature. Although the information we have seen on a number of occasions, the information contained in there, even though it was written thousands of years ago, is accurate to the most modern scientific findings. It is not a book of science. It starts at the very beginning as a book of relationships. 
And that's why sometimes some people misunderstand it because they look at it and expect it to be a book of science, which is never intended to be, and they miss out the relationship aspect of it. And if we look at it from the right angle, we will see that it is all about relationships. And it does contain a few points that actually are corroborated by the most recent uh, scientific findings. So it is accurate, but again, the purpose is relationships. And we see that from the beginning, it's the intent of God's communication with us. So it is not surprising that this passage that we just read today, way back later, much later than Genesis, of course, in the, in the time of the early church, would address that. Because even people in the church, even though we are supposed to be guided by, by the presence of God within us, even people in the church obviously are still dealing with sin, are still doing things that they're not supposed to do. We all are. We all have that tendency to sin. But then, because of that, our relationships can very easily and very quickly be distorted as well. And so we have plenty of instructions, even in the New Testament, plenty of instructions on how to restore the relationships, how to build those relationships again. And what I would like to do today is to go through this passage and group the principles that it's talking about. You will find instruction. Instructions that apply to your new relationships, how to build them in a proper way, but also instructions that we'll see apl applicable to old relationships that maybe have been stained a bit, or nicked, or distorted, or bended by some problems as sometimes we use these euphemisms to refer to sin as problems or wrong things or things like that. Now, if you look at this passage and you spend a little time analyzing it, you will see that there are at least five basic principles mentioned in there. And those are the five principles that we are going to look at today. The first one of all, of course, is love one another. You might say that really encompasses everything this chapter or this book or even the Bible talks about because in one word, if you were to sum all, all the teachings together, you would have to say love from a pure heart, like the Apostle Paul was inspired to share with us. That would be the sum total of that communication. But loving one another is indeed the key to everything. If you really love one another, if we really love one another, chances are that our relationships are not going to be distorted as much and they are not going to be altered or nicked or bent in, in, in a particular way. The reason why sin distorts relationships is because sin takes our attention away from the object that should be the object of our love, God and the others and our neighbors, and instead focuses, wants to focus all the attention on ourselves. It's all about us and what we get out of it. And you can imagine, you know, it's easy for us to think, I got married to this person because what she makes me feel like, or because of what he makes me feel like. He makes me feel good, or she makes me feel good, and therefore I feel great, and I, that's why I'm married to that person. But we don't almost, almost never turn it around and say, she married me only because I make her feel good. How do you like that side? See, we don't think in terms of the other person. We think in terms of us and what we get out of it. But now what if I were to say, my wife only married me because I make her feel good, because so she can use me for herself. 
I'll tell you what, it wouldn't be a good basis for a relationship, would it? It certainly would not feed my own selfishness. And so you, you see how when you start focusing on self, because she now has married me only for what she gets out of it, but I married her for only for what I get out of it. The problem is that when I try to get and she's trying to get, nobody's giving. And guess what? We're both lacking. And so we become very unhappy with each other. Oh, you don't give me any, not even as close as what you used to give me before you got married. We got married. And she says the same. And so I pull back and she pulls back. And now even more, we don't give each other anything, right? And so it's easy, if you look at it at that in that way, it's easy to see how focusing on self really doesn't build a relationship, but tends to tear them apart. So loving one another, by definition, what is love? Love is genuine concern for the other person. If I love Suzanne, my wife, that means I have genuine concern for her and I want to give her the best, that what is best for her. I want to serve her. I want to minister to her. I want to uphold her. I want to make her the best she can possibly be as far as my influence in her life is concerned, but I want to make sure that she's okay. My concern, if I love her, my concern is about her and is focusing on her, not on what I get out of it. That's selfishness. It's not love. It is sold as love, but it really isn't. Now, if I can love her that way, that love is just a mirror image of God's love for me and for you. Because the, ultimately, the way we learn that kind of love is by looking at God and what he has done. I mean, he's the creator of all things. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who owns everything. And he doesn't, I mean, if you want to look at it that way, he wouldn't even have to even pay any attention to us. But he created us to have a relationship with him. He created us to share eternity with him. And not because he needs us, but because he wants us to be much more than happy. He wants us to experience his glory and the increase of his peace and his kingdom forever. He built it all on love. He created out of love. Look at this world that he made and how he, it was made. And it's perfect, a perfect environment for us. It's also a perfect environment. We showed it at, during one of the Bible studies on Thursday night. We showed a documentary that, that demonstrates how not only the earth is a perfect environment for, li- for us to live in, it's also the perfect environment for us to s- discover the rest of the cosmos. You move it a little bit one way or the other, and you can't see what you can see today. So it was placed the way it was, and it was made the way it is made, so that not only we can live in the ideal conditions, but so also that we can discover the rest of creation and and, and understand something more about our Creator God. But His love obviously didn't stop there. He entered into His creation as in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. He died so that we don't have to experience the death that sin brings about. He paid our penalty on our behalf. And that is love. You know, if you were to see me giving my life to save my wife's life, you probably would think I loved her. And you would be right. Because as scripture teaches us, there is no greater love than to lay down your own life for someone else. But ultimately, you think about God Almighty, the one who created all things. And John 1 says he's the one who created everything. 
putting down his own life for you, that's the ultimate love. And it's not about himself. He didn't have to do that for himself. There is nothing that he gains from there, but he's giving all for you. And so we learn from that. The ultimate and most awesome example of what love is. So when he tells us love one another, as Jesus himself taught us, it's not the love of this world that he's talking about, but his own love. Extend the same giving, extend the same interest, the same care that he showed to have toward us, extend it to one another. Bask in his love, yes, but then use it and pour it out toward one another. In verse 9, it says, love without hypocrisy. Now, love is giving, not getting. So what does it mean to give, versus getting, to give without hypocrisy? Well, we need to understand that term, the Greek term used for hypocrisy. Now, that is the same word that was used for the actors in, in the amphitheaters in Greece. You know those curved-shaped theaters? Well, the actors that were acting there used to put a mask in front of them. They had essentially two masks, one with a big smile and one with a frown. So when we're, they were supposed to be happy, they would put the mask with a smile in front of them. When they were supposed to be sad, they would put the mask with the frown in front of them. And that act of putting a mask in front of them is where the word hypocrisy comes from. Covering the real self with a mask to come across in a different way. And that fits, doesn't it? Because that's what we tend to do when we are hypocritical. We tend to cover the real self with a mask to appear something different from what the way we really are. So when he says love without hypocrisy, it means be genuinely concerned for one another, be giving toward one another, but not as a ma- with a, like wearing a mask. Do it from a heart. Be genuine about it. Be that way because you really are that way, because you really want to be that way, not because you want to appear as a good person. So here you go, you know, put my Sunday clothes on and I appear like I'm a holier than thou or I'm a holy person or I'm a good person because I'm going to church or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And then as soon as I get out of here or turn around and change my clothes, I'm the same filthy mouth and the same pagan person I've always been, offending and hurting and and stealing and doing all sorts of things that are totally inconsistent with being a Christian. That would be hypocritical, wouldn't it? But I have to put a disclaimer here because sometimes people think that hypocritical is something that is not. I think we all understand hypocrisy because we see so much of it around us. Friends that are, they put the mask of being friends in front of us and then pull out the knife when we turn the back. We know that. We have experienced that, that kind of hypocrisy. But then we form this idea that hypocrisy is doing something we don't feel like doing. And that's not true. That's not true. An example. I use it hundreds of times, especially with the people I counsel. And, and they come up and say, but I, you know, I know I should do this thing, but I don't feel like doing it. And I feel like if I do it, it's a hypo- hypocritical thing to do. So here I go back over and over to my little illustration of the alarm clock in the morning. And the reason why I use that is because we all share that problem, right? This morning, my alarm clock went off. And man, you know what I felt like? 
I felt like grabbing that alarm clock and slamming against the wall and going back to sleep and say, leave me alone, right? I didn't have enough sleep, right? And I didn't want to listen to the alarm. So some people think, well, I don't feel like doing it. So if I do it, it's going to be hypocritical. Not true. It's going to be right. Because you know that I need to be here by a certain time. And if I didn't get up when the alarm went off, I wouldn't be here. And that would not be good. So what I did is even though I didn't feel like getting up, I still got up. That's not hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy would be? If at that moment I put the mask in front of me and pretended to be happy about it. Oh, thank you. The alarm went off again. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love this alarm. Oh, it's so good to wake up earlier before I, I, I'm supposed to be, when, when I'm still not rested enough. You know, it's so nice. I love this. That would be hypocrisy. I can guarantee you that would be hypocrisy. That's pretending to be what is not. But to say, oh, man, I don't feel like it, but I got to get up. And I will get up because it's the right thing to do. That's not hypocrisy. That's making a choice. Making a choice despite the way you feel about it. And you know, and I know, that that choice is the right one. So with that disclaimer, what hypocrisy is not, let's go back to this statement. Love one another without hypocrisy. Don't pretend you love a person. Don't put the good face just because you expect to get something back. That's what many people do. Oh, you know, I'm a wonderful person. And I'm giving this donation. So I'm going to have the newspapers take a picture with a big check like this. You know, oh, here, see how good I am. And so that's a facade, isn't it? Maybe behind this says, well, the only reason I'm giving this check is because I'm taking a, a, getting the tax break that keeps me below the tax bracket I need to be, right? Or that I would be otherwise. Or maybe the other thought is, I really hate to give this check, but it's good publicity and I needed the extra publicity. Well, you see, that is a facade that doesn't reflect the reality. What we are supposed to be like is that we are supposed to be genuinely concerned for one another and truly love one another, not with a facade from my heart. I think you get the point. But then it says in verse 10, be devoted to one another. See, love one another could be understood occasionally, right? Okay, I've done something nice to my wife last night. It was yesterday, it was her birthday, so we surprised her. We put, brought a cake and she didn't even know. It was right there in the fridge and she didn't even see it. Anyway, which, which was nice because we put it in a corner where I know she wouldn't tend to look. And, and so, but she was surprised when she had this cake and it was nice and she enjoyed it and she loved it. Besides, she got a new floor in the bedroom, so that's her birthday gift. So I've done something nice for her, right? So I'm okay for the next month. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm okay for the next month. I don't have to do anything else nice to her. I can cruise on for a while right now, right? Yeah, if you say love one another, that might even be understood to be the case, but not when you say be devoted to one another in love. Ah, that breaks the bubble. Because now by to be devoted to her in love or to be devoted to one another in love, that means I need to continue and do that constantly, continuously, all the time as my normal, regular routine. That means I got to do something nice for her today as well. I know, she likes that too. Have to do nice All right. Well, actually, I want to do something nice for her. And that's the way it should be. We, we should be wanting to do that. And that's what being devoted means. So, devotion is what characterizes love 
that is not towards self, but rather completely poured out toward the other person. It doesn't say love one another while you're being devoted to yourself. It says, no, be devoted to one another in love. As you seek the best and to give to one another, be devoted in that love. All right, we understand a little bit enough about this first principle to move on. The second principle and all of the other ones are a reflection of this love. Uh, You might say it's an explanation of how this love actually is put into practice. But the second one is respect one another. Now I want to submit to you, how would it be, or better yet, how easy would it be to be offended if we really respected one another from the heart, in love? You know what? It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. In my own experience, every time I got offended, it's because I didn't have respect for the other person. Or any time I offended someone, it's because there was a lack of respect toward each other. If I were to say a couple of bad words to my wife, since I'm picking on her today, if I were to say a couple of bad words to my wife, it's because I don't respect her. She would be offended by that. But the reason is I don't have respect for her. If I respected her, I wouldn't say those words. I couldn't possibly say those words. Now, here's how that boils down. Verse 10. Verse 10, we read, give preference to one another in honor. Well, that's different from what we hear usually around. Everyone likes to be honored and recognized for his or her accomplishments, right? All of us, all of us have the same desire to feel good about ourselves and to be honored by someone for something we've done, something we've accomplished, or something we said. Beware. Because that's a treacherous trap. When we really love one another as God enables us to do so, we really seek to honor the other person. In fact, this scripture tells us, verse 10 tells us that we prefer to honor the other person rather than ourselves. Just imagine that for a second. Imagine for a moment, if we truly honored one another, if we truly prefer to give honor to the other person than to ourselves. What would happen to gossip? Try to gossip now. You know, Ernie is looking at me right now, right? If I prefer to honor him more than me, how can I go to Suzanne and gossip about him? Yeah, it's inconsistent. It, it, it really doesn't make any sense. If I want to honor you, I wouldn't be going around saying a whole bunch of slanderous things about you. It's impossible. But if I don't respect him. I might go to Barbara and say a couple of things about Ernie. Now he's in trouble. <laughs> okay. You see, you see what I'm getting? If you put that respect in, if you seek to honor the other person even more than yourself, then there is no room for gossip. There is no room for slander. And there is no room for those incredibly hurtful things that people do, that we all tend to do. In verse 16, be of the same mind with one another. Easier said than done. Be of the same mind with one another. But how can I be of the same mind as Elizabeth, for instance, if I don't respect her enough to even know what's in her mind? You know, oftentimes I noticed when my wife and I had a bit of a spat or an argument or something like that, one of the issues that were there is that we didn't listen to each other. We didn't have enough respect to actually find out what was in the mind of the other person before we reacted to that. And usually what we do is when we're too tired to react, we find out it was a completely gross misunderstanding to begin with. And, we, and then we look at each other. We think, 
Why do we waste so much time on a stupid misunderstanding? But again, that respect would really make a difference, wouldn't it? We can't be of the same mind with one another if we don't respect each other enough to understand what is in each other's mind and to listen to one another. And even if we have a problem with that person, even if we look at an individual and say, I really have a hard time having respect for this person after what he or she has done. And if you have that weakness, if you are affected by that weakness, there's one thing I can still tell you. You can at least respect what God is doing in that person or what God has done in that person. And believe me, there have been moments in my relationships in which I had to do that. I just didn't find within me to respect the person in and by him or herself. And I had to look at it from that angle. Can I at least respect what God is doing in this person? And the answer is, yes, you can. And you can start from there. Verse 16, it says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That's respect. That's honoring one another. Honoring and respecting one another prevents us from working on the basis of castes. I am a much higher level than you are, therefore I can't associate with you. Well, that's a, a absolute in breach and violation of this principle that God has given us through the Apostle Paul. We shouldn't even be thinking that way if we truly respect one another. In fact, if we truly respect and honor one another, we should break down those barriers and those castes. And maybe if I'm more blessed by God than somebody else, maybe I could share some of that blessing with the other person. Instead of holding on to my blessing and making it a symbol of my pride because I'm better than you are because I'm more blessed by... Think about it for a second. How much sense is it? I am better than you are because I got a bigger gift than you did. I remember my brother and I when we were little kids reasoning that way. But hopefully as we grow into adulthood, we stop reasoning that way and we realize that's a bunch of baloney. That absolutely makes no sense. If I'm receiving a gift, I'm blessed by that gift. It's not something I earned or deserved. It's a gift. And if my gift is a little bigger than, and better than somebody else, maybe what I should do is to share some of that gift with the other person. I wish my brother did that with me. I really do. But you know what? There is someone around you who wishes that you could share with them some of the blessings that God has given you. Because it will make a big difference in their life. So don't be haughty. Don't think like you're better than anybody else. That's one of the biggest criticisms against Christianity. And it's a valid criticism because there are way too many people in the Christian world that think they are better than everybody else without realizing they are just like everybody else. The only difference is that we understand that God has forgiven us. While the other people may not understand God has forgiven them. That's a good news. And we could share that with them. But instead of being concerned about them and sharing the good news with them, what we do is we take it for ourselves and we, we almost feel like, hey, this is my merit because I'm better than somebody else. No. Nonsense. Verse 16, the last part of verse 16 says, don't be wise in your own estimation. <laughs> don't we tend to think we're always right? And of course, I can understand. You say, oh, no, I never think I'm always right. I don't think I'm always right because that's not the case. It can't, I can't always be right. Hmm? I, I, let me give you a couple of examples how we all tend to do that. We tend to think 
that our judgment is correct, don't we? What about statements like, follow me what you feel is right, or doing what feels right to you? Recognize that? Where does that come from? The fact that we think we're right. The fact that we think we're wise. We don't spell it out that way. We don't translate it to that. But when we think we are wise in our own estimation, when we think we have a good judgment, then we say, okay, well, let me see. If I like it, it's okay. If I don't like it, it's not okay. If I can understand it, it's fine. If I can't understand it, it's bad. Uh, I know I'm pushing some buttons. But please, think it through. Because you may not think it in those terms, but that's what we do. Right? And we evaluate it based on our set of beliefs and thoughts. What we like is okay. What we don't like is not okay. We rarely seldom think, you know, I may be wrong in this estimation. I may be thinking that something is right and instead is not quite so right. I may think that this is quite fine for me to do, but it might be harmful to someone else. And that's what scriptures invite us to do. Proverbs chapter 14, actually it repeats it in chapter 16. But Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, the end of that way, is the way of death. Yeah? There are things that seem right to us. There are some things that we think are just right. But we fool ourselves. And those ways end up in death. So you see how the respect does make a difference. Respect comes from not considering ourselves to be all wise, but giving room to the other person as well. Allowing God to work through the other person as well. And honoring the other person as well. The third principle, and I'll pick up a pace right now. The third principle that we find in there is serving one another. I think if we understand the principle illustrated so far, it is easy for us to see how we are called to serve one another. The examples that are given to us are in verse 13 and in verse 15. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Well, if we are truly genuinely concerned for one another and we know that someone has a need, why wouldn't we want to contribute? We might not be able to meet that need completely, but we can help a little bit. And if one person helps a little bit, the other person helps a little bit, the other person helps a little bit, guess what? It amounts to a lot. But if we are all self-concerned and don't have any interest in the other person, that's not going to happen. It says practice hospitality. When is the last time you had somebody over? When is the last time you shared some of yours with someone else. We had a picnic. I hope that nobody brought something to the picnic and said, this is mine. I hope everyone went to the picnic and said, here, this is for you guys. Hopefully there's something for me too. <laughs> but here's for you. It's, it's interesting. If you want to see the way of giving versus the way of getting, try that. Go to a picnic in which everyone brings the food only for themselves. And you will see, unmistakably, someone will be lacking food. Now, go to another picnic where everyone brings something for everybody else. And you will unmistakably see food being left over. And say, are you going to take this? Oh, I'm quite full. I've got a bunch of stuff in here, too. Well, why don't you take that? And everybody's trying to have somebody else take that food. 
The way of giving fills the need of everyone, and there is more left over. The way of getting causes everyone to be in need of something. Serve one another. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Share and minister to the people in their emotional state and wherever they are. Are they joyful? Rejoice with them. Are they sad? Share that with them. Be there for one another. Now, if we are that, how hard is it for us to continue to argue, to bicker, to divide, to bend and twist that relation, to distort the relationship? Doesn't this build a new relationship? Doesn't that help us to reestablish a connection between one another? The next principle is don't give up. The fourth principle is be persistent in serving the Lord. Because I want to remind you what Jesus said. Jesus said, inasmuch as you do this to the least of these people of mine, you do it to me. So everything you do to your brother or sister, everything you do to the person on the street, everything you do to a stranger, you're actually doing it to Christ himself. So when he says in here, be persistent in serving the Lord, means be persistent also in serving one another. And persistency means you don't give up. No, it doesn't mean you become annoying. Right? And you go to Elisabetta's house and say, you need some food. Oh, I, I got, look, the table is full. I really don't need this. And I, I mean, you know, that's it's very nice, thoughtful. No, you need some food. You better take my food and, you know, and be obnoxious and try to push your service. Of course not. And it's kind of hopefully humorous that we put it that way. But be persistent means don't lag in diligence. Be fervent in spirit, meaning do the things you do, the ministry that you do, the service that you do for one another with passion, with conviction, with desire. And if something goes wrong, if you have a curveball thrown at you, don't give up. Yeah, I tried to help that person who was hurting like crazy, and he snapped back at me. And I'm offended now. I'm never going to talk to that person again. That's not being persistent. That's not being forgiving. That's not being loving. That's not being any of the things we saw. That's not being respectful. That's not serving one another. That's none of the things we talked about so far. It is a lack of understanding. If someone is hurting and hurting deeply, chances are they will snap back. Nurses understand that. They deal with that every day. Pastors understand that. They deal with it almost every day. A senior pastor was mentoring a, a young pastor, and this young pastor was complaining about the fact that somebody was being grumpy and, and answering in the wrong way. And the senior pastor said, okay, do you have a dog? He said, yes. What if your dog had a wound on the side? And you had to attend to the wound, and you went to push into, into the wound to take something out of the wound. What would the dog do? Oh, he would probably, you know, the first temptation would be for the dog to bite me, but probably might refrain himself, but it would come around and turn Try to bite me. And the, the older pastor said, why would he do that? Well, it hurts. I mean, he's probably defending and protecting the wound. He says, why would you think more of a dog than a person? A food for thought, really. Because when you go and help someone in an area that really hurts them, you are touching the wound. And if sometimes they react and they respond biting a little bit, you need to understand that that's what happens? It's defensiveness. It's insecurity. It is pain coming through in that way. You need to look beyond that and continue to help and serve and minister to that person. That's what we're called to do. But even more so, we are to rejoice in hope, we are told in verse 12. 
Don't rejoice. Notice it doesn't say rejoice in what you get back. No, rejoice in hope. That points to at least a couple of things. First of all, the hope that we have in Christ. Once you've done the service that God has called you to do, Christ will respond to you, Matthew 25. Good and faithful servant, well done. You've been faithful over little things here, being in charge over many things. Here's a big reward. Okay, the hope of a reward in Christ is there. It's true. God himself put it in there, and he had a reason for doing that. But there's also the hope in many other ways, the hope that God will lead us through, the hope that God will give us the wisdom on how to minister to this person, especially if a person is being a little difficult. The hope that God will see our efforts go through and make a, a good uh, end up in a good result. The hope that God will touch the other person and, and do a good work in that person because the, the work that God has began and that person will be brought to completion. Even if a person doesn't want that, eventually it will come to completion. And then it says in verse 12, persevere in tribulation. Oh, we don't like that, do we? Oh, but I got a flat tire, so I can't serve anymore. Sorry, guys. Bye. No, it simply means you got a flat tire and you're helping somebody or you're doing some work for the Lord or something like that. Well, okay, fix the tire. Or if you can't right away, walk or, or get a ride with somebody else or do something. Else. You know what? I, I've seen people minister that if we were to stop because of a tribulation, because of a problem, because of a challenge, because of an issue, because of an obstacle, they would never have moved at all. I know people that live bumping from one obstacle to the other and still persevere and continue. And you know what? They're the most inspiring ones for me. I remember one time a little kid going to an adult. And I, I, that, that, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. This little kid, in his own words, pulled the sleeve of the adult and says, I like you. So the adult says, Why? Because you've gone through a lot of trouble and you never gave up. And this little kid said, I had a lot of trouble in school and I was going to give up. But then I saw you and I learned that I shouldn't give up. Simple. And yet look at the difference he made in that young life. Be persistent in the right way. Persevere in tribulation. Okay, things hurt. Things become difficult. So what do we do? We stop being Christians because it's tough and hard? No. Actually, we become even more so. We persevere even when things are tough and difficult. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Now, I like the wording in here because to be really, truly at peace, it takes two people. If I want to be at peace with my wife, Suzanne, it takes both of us to be at peace. But if she doesn't want to be at peace, which is not the case, okay? If she does not want to be at peace, which is not the case, I'm still bound to do everything possible on my side to be at peace with her. If possible, so the acknowledgement from God is that it may not be possible because it may not depend on us. As far as it depends on us, it's an, an admission and acknowledgement that it does not all depend on us, but as much as it does, be at peace with everyone. So we need to be peacemakers. Peacemakers don't argue. Peacemakers don't fight. Peacemakers may take a position and defend a position for something that is absolutely right and needs to be defended, but the peacemaker knows the difference for, between what is worth fighting for, like truth and other good things, between that and what is not worth fighting for, like an impression or a little feeling that is, gone, is here today and gone tomorrow. 
If possible, as far as it depends on us, we need to be at peace with all people. We need to be persistent in being peacemakers and not give up. And the last concept that we find in here is stand for what is right in God's eyes, no matter what the circumstances may be. In verse 12, we, are, we read, be devoted to prayer. Talk to God in prayer. Listen to him and his word. It's a conversation. Every relationship is built on communication. There is no relationship you can ever build that doesn't have communication. Communication is what makes relationships. Communication is what binds relationships. Communication is what nurtures the, our relationships. So start with God. Communicate with him by talking to him in prayer and allowing him to talk to you through scripture. And that is actually a communication that will turn into a fellowship. So that's why in verse 12 we are told to be devoted to prayer. So that's the second thing we are called to be devoted to. To serving one another and to praying. Praying to God, talking to God, praying for one another, and all those things are included. But don't let your prayer be, God, please give me, give me, give me, give me. Go back to Matthew 6 to see a pattern of prayer. In verse 14, we are told to bless, not curse, those who persecute us. It's also easy to curse someone because they do something wrong to us. But we're called to bless them, not curse them. In verse 9, we are to abhor evil and cling to what is good. Abhorring evil is staying as far as you possibly ever be from it. But to cling to what is good, it means you're stuck with it like super glue. And make sure that that good never leaves you. Hold on to it tight. But that also means abhor evil, yes, don't participate in the evil of other people, but it also says to cling on to what is good in them. Is there something good in someone? Hold on to that. Verse 17 says, never pay back evil for evil. The same verse says, respect what is right. So have a great respect for what is right in God's eyes. And never turn around and pay back evil for evil. All right, so my wife comes to me and slaps me. So I turn around and slap her. You see me and you tell me, what are you doing slapping your wife? And I feel justified because she slapped me first. And so if you're wise, you would say, and that means what? How does that make you better having done to her the same thing she did to you? You think you're better because you responded in the same terms? In fact, you probably slapped her harder than she slapped you, and we are better? Someone comes up to me and slashes a tire in my car, so I go out and slash it all four of theirs. And of course, that makes me better than they are, right? That's ridiculous, and yet we do it all the time. He hurt me, so I hurt them back. And that makes what? That makes it better? Of course not. But if someone hurts me, and I don't pay back evil for evil, but I do something good for them, that, that does make me better. That does make you better. Not responding evil for evil, but responding to evil with good does make us better in that sense. Or better yet, it shows that we reflect a little bit of the love of God, and the credit goes to Him. Verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, but leave it to God. That's very important. You know, I, I look at the arguments I've had me with my wife over the years, and I can't remember a single one that did not turn out to be a misunderstanding. I really can't. Now, if I was God, I would know that before I even start into the argument. 
because I will know what's in her heart. But being a human, I don't know what's in her heart. All I see is what comes right out. And sometimes I look at what comes out and I misinterpret it and I don't understand what she really intended with it. That's why we can't take revenge. That's why we are incapable and disqualified from giving retribution to someone for what they do. You think they do it in a certain way for a certain reason or, or and, and, and the story behind it could be totally different and totally wrong. Even if they do something that is actually wrong. You don't know what's, what's going on deep inside them. And you know one thing though. You made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You have sinned. I have sinned. We all know that. So who are we to judge somebody else? But God knows not only what people do. God knows what's in their hearts. God knows what he's doing in their hearts. God knows all those things that we don't know and he is absolutely qualified to do the final judgment and to give retribution according to all those factors. In fact, our role in verse 20 is made different. If your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he's thirsty, then give him something to drink. You know, your enemy doesn't do nice things to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be an enemy. You never see an enemy coming to you and say, I have a little gift for you and not expect it to be a bomb. The enemy is someone that wants to hurt you. But how are we to respond to the enemy? Feed them if they're hungry. Give them something to drink if they're thirsty. Don't get into their bomb and make it explode on you just to make them feel good. No, that's not what he's talking about. Be wise, be, be smart, be sharp, but minister to them when they are in need. That's the way of God. Don't be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. And I will conclude by telling you one thing. I never understood these words until I was absolutely face-on confronted by them. I remember one time somebody did something horrible to me and my family. And I remember two lawyers coming to me. Their lawyer and my lawyer. And both their lawyer and my lawyer had agreed that I would win the case. Go figure that. Okay. Now, who wouldn't jump on that? I was tempted to do that. Because I was tempted to teach them a lesson. I was tempted to say, you know what? They really hurt us so bad. If they just learned this little lesson, probably will prevent them from hurting somebody else. You see the rationalization occurring and so on? But then I came to my senses, and I didn't do that. And it hurt like cats and dogs, because they kept going. It made things even worse. But then years later, God turned things around. See, I didn't. God did. And that's why I learned my big lesson. Listen to what God says, because it really works. God turned things around, and these people actually came up to me very sheepishly. And in their own way, asking for forgiveness. Their own way was, are you okay? You know, when someone has hurt you so much, for them to come up to you very sheepishly and say, are you okay? It's almost like saying, it translates into saying, you know, I realize I've done horrible things to you and I hope you came out of that okay. That I did not damage you permanently. And I was able, in all honesty, to look at them straight in the eyes and say, I am quite fine, thank you. And I am where God wants me to be. 
God has used it for good. He turned that evil into good. But he wouldn't have done it if I was overcome by evil and I responded to evil with another evil. If I took upon my hands to do vengeance, God wouldn't have been able to work all those things around and the relationship would never, never have been mended. And every time I think of that, I would still have the same pain within me, if not worse. While today, by the grace of God, I can think of those events and not even have a little sting of pain. If anything, I have compassion for those people and I hope that they're okay. The only way we can come to that is not because I'm better than anybody else. The only way we can come to that is if we, if we do what God told us to do and allow Him to work in us and in that relationship. So that's a lesson for today. That's what we learned from this Romans 12. Love one another, respect one another, serve one another. Be persistent in serving the Lord. Don't give up just because there are some troubles and tribulations. Keep going and stand up for what is right in God's eyes. Don't be overcome by evil, but respond to all evil with some good. That's only a small part of what mending relationships is all about, but it's a foundational, very important part. It's at the basis of everything else. And I hope you'll take it to heart and go back home and review this this passage and study it and really put it into practice in our life because that really should be should be our compass in our daily life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you very much for having that love toward us, for having that reconciliation, for making possible for us to be reconciled with you, for reaching out to us and mending our relationship with you. And we ask you that you will grant us the ability to mend our relationships with one another as well as with you. We thank you for your love and we ask you that that love may fill our hearts and, and then flow out from us toward one another. And we ask you that you would give us the wisdom to understand how to apply your word and how to apply your principles to our relationships. And we commit ourselves and our relationships to you in Jesus' name. Amen.